You're listening to So What? The podcast that explores why library and information science research matters. We interview researchers about their work. And they connect the dots between what they do and its importance to your life. Okay, let's get on it. Today we're here with Brooke Broussard, an expert on religious studies. Brooke, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm currently an MLIS candidate at the University of Western Ontario, but I also hold a PhD in religious studies uh, that I earned in 2018 from the University of Waterloo. I also hold a Master's of Arts in History and Art, and my Bachelor's is in History and Art and Religious Studies. So I teach across these different fields, uh, religious studies, Canadian studies, and art history. My expertise, I guess, is in a few things, uh, but the PhD was uh, in religious diversity in North America. My focus of my dissertation was on uh, history of religion in Canada, newer religious movements, Yeah, basically the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the case study that I chose to do. And I look at Western Canada specifically. Okay, I want to ask you a little bit more about these uh, new religious movements, if that's the term. So what separates a new religious movement from a not new religious movement? And then tell me, uh, tell me what it was like studying the uh, Latter-day Saints. Well, that's a hard question to answer because there's probably no one way to define a new religious movement. If you talk to maybe a practicing Christian in North America, they would say so-and-so is a cult um, versus a religion, whereas in religious studies, we would rather not use that term as it's derogatory. So to me, a new religious movement is, is something that is is newer than some of our classical traditions such as Hinduism, Buddhism, Christianity. However, if you go back and think about it, all of these things were new religions at one point in time. They just have the luxury of time. So I look at groups that don't have the luxury of time to establish themselves. So I'm talking about groups like the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Jehovah's Witnesses, Scientologists, um, and then a lot of smaller groups that come up through the 20th century. Uh, But for me, my focus is really on, I guess, the um, 19th century, early, early 20th century, newer religions. Well, you could go by you could go by date, I guess, if you wanted to. I mean, there's a certain arbitrariness to that, but arbitrary can be very useful. Just look at, uh, you know, rulers and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, well, let's let's uh, dive into what you found. Like, what was your PhD about? What did you find? And uh, what was your process for finding it? Sure. So my PhD process was, I think, pretty, pretty traditional. We had, you know, a year of coursework where we studied history of religion, religious diversity, sociology of religion. I did some theology courses just to round it out. And and then I had a year of comps. So my my um, my fields were in history of Christianity in North America, new new religious movements, and and then I had a specific field just for Mormonism. Uh, and then after that, I kind of went out into the field uh, to conduct my research. And my research uh, required archival visits. So so I went to Utah and Alberta. I went to Utah summer of 2014. Yeah, summer of 2014. 
uh, winter of 2015, spring of 2015, and then I was uh, in Alberta in the summer of, of 2015 and visiting church history libraries, museums, historic sites. Uh, I, I visited six cemeteries. I photographed and documented six cemeteries in Southern Alberta. No interviews, so I'm my project and my research focus is really historical, so I'm interested in primary sources, not, not necessarily talking to people or to conducting interviews or surveys, but I do heavily rely on oral histories that were recorded uh, in the 1970s and 1980s, uh, so those transcripts are really important, and, and I look at things like meeting minutes, uh, biographies and autobiographies, journals, personal correspondence, architecture, uh, the built environment, stuff like that. So when I got home in the fall of 2015, I started writing. Uh, it took a couple years to really sift through all of the data that I collected over that year of field work uh, and, and visits to the special collections and, and archives and museums. But I sat down and I kind of identified themes. I initially went into this and I thought I was going to write this really nice chronological story. And when in fact, I realized the story was much more thematic. So my chapters ended up being things like a chapter on architecture, a chapter on gender, a chapter on a family structures, family dynamics and relationships, a chapter on politics, business. Um, so that's really how I saw this, this mapping out. Um, and, and the research questions that guided this project, uh, there were three. So the first one was, uh, what beliefs, traditions, and or practices unique to, to the church? So the, the church, when I say the church, I mean the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. What things unique to them um, or characteristics that they use to draw boundaries around themselves? Did they um, include in order to maintain this identity of peculiarity or uniqueness? And, and did it provide them with tension to outsiders to remain distinctive? Or were it things that still kept boundaries around them, but made them appear relatively harmless to Canadians or the Canadian public? So that's kind of one question. Another question is, how did they embed themselves in the social, economic, and political structures of Canada? And the last question was really, how did they adapt their religion to Canadian circumstances? And I, and I ended up answering these questions in kind of a surprising way. I really thought that I would find a Canadianization of the religion on Canadian soil because if anyone that knows anything about Mormonism knows it's a very American religion. If I recall so I correctly. Thought, well, yeah, so I thought, well, it's going to be Canadian, and that's not really what happened. It was a lot messier and more fluid than that. The, the group that I studied, really the time period was 1887 to 1947, and by the late 1940s, I definitely saw a shift. Um, in integration. So they had integrated quite successfully by that time, um, but they had also moved away from their American counterparts. So they <clears throat> didn't necessarily become Canadian, but they did become less American-like. Um, but I mean, the debate about whether or not Canadians and Americans are different, that's a whole other paper. 
for sure. I'm not a member of this religion. So I, the question that I always get is like, why did you pick this group? A lot of people in religious studies, well, I shouldn't say a lot, but okay. It's kind of a split. Some people are definitely religious and study their own faith or religion. And then there's kind of like another half where we're not religious, but we're interested in like culture, society, history, um, you know, kind of different things. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, religions are a very influential part of uh, the human story. It's a fascinating phenomenon. I agree. I think it's very important and very, and very interesting. So I, I, my parents moved us to Alberta in high school and I started university in Lethbridge and Southern Alberta has just a really high population of Latter-day Saints and their, their first temple that they built outside of the U.S. is located in Carkston, Alberta, which is a town south of Lethbridge. And when I saw it, uh, so you have to look it up. Maybe we can include a picture, but um, it's basically the focus of uh, my one of my chapters. Um, if you saw the architectural style and you know anything about Southern Alberta, you would think, what is this huge sparkling white marble monolith doing in the middle of a tiny prairie town? And that was really the question. I thought, what is this doing here? And then I, when I found out what it was, why aren't I allowed inside? Because I'm not allowed inside. I'm not a member. And so those questions really sparked my interest in this group of people. And that was really way back. You know, I think I was probably 18 or 19 years old. Um, so it was just curiosity, really, really just a curiosity about who are these people? Why did they build this? And why aren't I allowed inside? <laughs> I mean, that's where a lot of uh, uh, great research comes from. Not the eureka moment, but the, huh, that's funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I needed answers. And then the, an the, the questions, I guess, just fueled years and years of, of more questions. <laughs> and what I found was that Latter-day Saints living in this place at this time did integrate into Canadian society. But they also maintained their unique identity through negotiations at these sites um, and, and that this process became a negotiation between things that they were willing to adopt, things that they rejected or ignored, and, and, and things that they sometimes adopted or changed along the way. So, so this book demonstrates that depending on the group's level of success, they might maintain some tension with dominant society. They might also keep a distinctive part of that identity that the dominant group would find access acceptable. So the process of negotiation uh, takes time. It's multidimensional. It's messy. And it's very complicated. So I, I need to ask, but feel free to say, well, if you want the answer to that, you have to buy the book. But do you have like an example of something that um, the uh, Latter-day Saints in Canada uh, adopted in order to, um, well, not not assimilate, but at least work within the Canadian context, and something that uh, they held on to, despite pressures from the Canadian context. Yeah, I mean, there's a bunch of examples. Um, one, okay, one. I'll give you one. So one thing they gave up was the practice of plural marriage. Now, that was that because they moved to Canada. I mean that is debatable but the timeline that i trace in my book is interesting because they come to canada 
1887. They send a group of leaders, so three men, go to Ottawa, meet with our prime minister, ask the prime minister for permission to continue to practice plural marriage. And by plural marriage, I mean polygamy, which means uh, one man um, and then multiple wives. Um, so they ask the prime minister, we want to come to Canada. Can we keep practicing this? Prime minister says no. They say, oh, we kind of thought he said yes. Um, they come back to Alberta from Ottawa. Things continue, you know, for a couple months. And then in 1890, the church says we are going to start the end of the practice. So I don't say the end of the practice because the practice of plural marriage does not end. But in 1890, they say, you know, we're going to start um start the end. Um, so it doesn't really end until the 20th century. Uh, so I think that's an interesting timeline that a lot of other things were happening in the United States legally that definitely pushed them to stop plural marriage. But that Canadian part is often not ever, ever talked about when people talk about the end of plural marriage in the church. It's always the United States uh, legal implications and consequences and prosecutions uh, because no one in Canada was actually charged with bigamy or polygamy in the group that I look at. So they, they eventually did stop the practice of plural marriage. I would say maybe by 1910, they had stopped uh, doing that in, in the records that I have anyway. Um, and then one thing that they, let's see, one thing that they didn't give up um, well, so things just kind of shifted. So instead of a plurality in, in, in the family structure, it was a longevity. So an emphasis on families forever. So not multiple families, but families for all of eternity. So the beliefs, um, it's not that they changed, but the emphasis shifted. Yeah, that's a little taste, I guess. <laughs> Fair enough. Is that uh, similar to or related to the concept of baptizing the ancestors? Oh, yes. So, yeah. So baptizing the dead. That's so that's definitely something that has stayed. I don't know in, in my time period if that was public enough to have caused any problems, whereas plural marriage, like most Canadians knew, knew about that. Um, the people who had problems with the Latter-day Saints always, always brought up multiple wives uh, as, a, as a problem but I don't remember them crit criticizing baptizing of the dead because they probably didn't really know about it I mean uh, ignorance is bliss I suppose fair That's enough right well uh, you've since started turning all of this into a book from what I understand do you want to talk about that process sure so I so the title of my book is Oh, this is a mistake that you shouldn't make. So, so the title of my book is the same title as my dissertation, and and that's a mistake. But it's but so it might change because you don't want someone to like search your book and find your dissertation because if they go with that and it's different, you you want them to read the book basically. Anyway, so the title of my book is "Thirsty Land into Springs of Water: Negotiating a Place in Canada as Latter Day Saints, 1887 to 1947," and the little you know, summary or blurb that I always say about the book is that 
This book examines how Latter-day Saints integrated into Canadian society, specifically in Alberta between 1887 and 1947, by studying several sites of negotiation, including material culture, things like the built environment, uh, architecture, cemeteries, gender roles, politics, business, and marriage. We were kind of told during our PhD that you can turn your dissertation into a book. And I graduated in 2018 and I thought, oh, this is a good idea. Why not uh, propose my book? And back then the job market was pretty, pretty bad, but it wasn't as bad as it is today. And I still had like a little inkling of hope that I might end up a full-time permanent faculty member somewhere. So I thought, you know, a book, you need a book, good idea. So I submitted a proposal right away uh, it was accepted. The University of Toronto Press was my first choice, and, and they were interested. So I submitted it, and it went through reader revisions. And basically, I got back my reader reports last summer, Yeah, which was, of course, COVID. So I didn't really sit down and seriously consider my reader reports until the late fall. And by that point, I kind of knew with COVID, and everything else going on that <laughs> my future in higher education was looking less and less likely. So the book, you know, kind of got pushed and I didn't really start working on it again until the new year. So 2021, but basically it had gone through peer review Two readers, uh, read it, um, blind, of course, I have no idea who they are. I suspect they were historians, uh, just from the comments, uh, really good constructive feedback, um, to sit with detailed, really detailed. But basically, I, I had revisions to do that were structural, not necessarily content related. So one thing I was concerned about was whether or not they were going to send me back into the archives. I, I was concerned that they would say, you know, not enough evidence, or we need more or something, which is kind of funny looking back on how I revised. I had so much to edit out because when you're doing a dissertation, you're like, here are a hundred examples to prove my one argument when for the book, I only need like five examples. <laughs> so, so thankfully they were like, yeah, research solid, everything solid. It was just more about reframing it. Um, writing with more confidence, I guess it's still kind of read like a dissertation where you're, you're tentatively saying something and they've said no just say it <laughs> just you've you've proven it so say it with confidence and really i restructured almost the whole book when i submitted it as a book it still really looked like a dissertation i had shortened my literature review it, it wasn't enough so that i really really reduced that i changed my entire introduction chapter i i made new chapters so i had one in the dissertation, I had one chapter that was combining both um, political participation and economics or business. And, and in the book, those became two separate chapters. I refocused every chapter around a different framework than one I had used in my dissertation. Uh, one reader suggested removing this framework that I had. They thought it was quite limiting. And I, I, I kind of agreed. It was just a really uh, intuitive way for me to present the the story and the dissertation, but the book didn't need it. And so, you know, just little things like that. And I worked on it all winter while I was starting my MLIS coursework. So I only really was able to work on the book about one day a week, um, one or two days a week. And 
ended up finishing the revisions in July and sent it back off to my editor. So now I think we, I'm just waiting. I suspect there's probably more revisions to come. Um, like I'm not, it's not done. It's not in copy edit or anything, but I, I feel pretty good about what I submitted. <laughs> pretty soon in that case, it seems likely. So uh, the question I would have is the process of transitioning thesis to book for perhaps more public consumption. That's something that I think a lot of people in the PhD process are uh, somewhat interested in. Would you recommend it? I would recommend really assessing how much time you have and how much time you're willing to dedicate to this book project, knowing that there is a 2% chance that you will get a tenure track job that requires a book. And if you are like, yeah, I have a lot of spare time and I'm really passionate about this research, then sure, do a book project. I I went with University of Toronto Press because again, I was still thinking that academia wasn't going to combust on itself. You know, I really thought that it was going to recover and there was going to be jobs, blah, blah, blah. But um, so, so that's why I went with an academic, a traditional academic press. I wanted to go with like the top press in Canada. I wanted it to be a Canadian press. So yeah, you want to know who's your audience. And so because I thought my audience was academics and I, and I really wanted it to be scholars of Canadian history, Canadian sociology and Canadian religion and or North American, all of those things. That's why I went with a Canadian press. I would say, you know, if you're not going the academic, the traditional academic route, look at popular presses as well. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with going with a like a market press or I don't know what they're called, but like, you know, Random House or whoever does I mean, books. some some of those books <laughs> do very well uh, by people who are definitely not religious studies uh, scholars. Um, I mean, The God Delusion, of course, comes to mind, but I'm sure there's plenty of others that have been uh, New York Times bestsellers. So Exactly. Same with history. Like, lots of uh, American historians, I've noticed, are are going that route as well, and, and I don't see anything wrong with that. Everyone, be sure to uh, uh, buy her book when it's available, and... Uh, University of Toronto Press, available, I'm going to say, soon. Okay, so, well, one thing that I really like that we've emphasized here is you've been through a lot of this process. You have, you know, been in the trenches. You've really done, done your homework in a field that is not LIS, and now you've transitioned into LIS, and that means that you're coming to this field with a whole lot of dare I say it, expertise. So I, I kind of want to explore your thoughts on the overlaps and connections that you might be able to see between religious studies and, uh, and LIS. Tell us what you found when you got here. Well, I was quite surprised last semester was my first semester, so winter 2021. I, I decided to do my MLIS because I had worked in an academic library for three years and I knew that if if my place wasn't in the classroom, my place was definitely working with students and faculty members and staff in some way. And I always found the library a great place to to really put my skills to work. So, you know, the MLIS seemed like like a good option, but I had no idea that I would find so much overlap between religious studies and LIS. And it's like, my profs are probably so annoyed of me talking about this or writing about this because 
every time I'm like, oh, this is exactly this in religious studies. So like, I think I just submitted a reflection paper for 9003 and we were, uh, the, the topic was um, information behavior. So 9003 is the, uh, how to do the reference interview and how to uh, search it? Yeah, okay. yeah, that's exactly right. And so the topic of information behavior, as I'm reading it, I was like, oh, this is just called lived religion. Like this is just lived religion. So it's just funny because it's just a different language to talk about things that I already uh, kind of know. So I'm definitely not an expert on LIS, but I feel like an expert on religious studies. So as I'm talking about that, keep that in mind because I still don't know a lot of um, LIS stuff. So one thing that came up in 9001, um, which again, I don't remember what's the, I, don't uh, remember I believe the title that one, I think it's sort of like uh, current issues in library science. So copyright, um, intellectual property, various things that uh, just give you an overview of the the, the current issues that... Uh... That's right. Okay. Yeah. In that class, we read uh, Vocational Awe by ETAR. And as I read it, I mean, a lot of it's clicking because it's, you know, the author showing the Christian roots uh, the, and white, the white supremacy of, of library science. And I'm like, okay, yeah, this is everything I've, I've learned. You know, the, this is the roots of North America. And as I'm reading it, because they're showing really the history of library science, also how it's rooted within, so I shouldn't say just North America, because it was like medieval Christianity as well. But I really thought, well, we can actually go beyond this history to show the overlap between the two, between um, LIS and religious studies, because to me, both are looking at people asking questions and seeking answers. So someone in the world could be seeking an answer to where's the closest bus stop, or they could be seeking an answer to where do I go in the afterlife, or like, you know, a universal truth. So to me, I see library user, could be religious believer, librarian, could be spiritual guide or priest or guru, information behavior, another way to say religious behavior and practices, even thinking about the core values of librarianship as, you know, very controversial, very problematic. I mean, I could also say it's open to interpretation, just like scripture is. Scripture is controversial, open to interpretation. So as I'm reading this, this post, I, I ended up having to write an essay, uh, like a critical reflection. And I, and I really focused on this because for the reasons that I just mentioned, but also when uh, ETAR shows that the library is, is not inherently good, um, that it is really a flawed institution, that was another alarm bell. I was like, okay, yeah, religion, not inherently good a flawed institution, check, check. There's really this popular misconception that religion is always a force for good in society. Uh, and this is something that one of my mentors calls the good moral and decent fallacy. This belief that, you know, religion equals good. So like they're, they're religious, they can't be, they can't do anything bad and that's just not true. And so I saw in this in this reading that there's a similar myth in, in library science, that the library is this good place. And that's also, you know, not necessarily true. And the definition of vocational awe similarly challenged assumptions by reminding me um, that libraries as institutions 
and, and religions as institutions are are not inherently good they're not inherently sacred and they're they are not beyond critique and and that's really important to remember that religion is not beyond critique and i and i i learned that libraries are also not beyond critique so the public might imagine the library as this open and accepting you know, center or community hub and that's not that has not always been the case same with religion you know as the library can cause harm can exclude and oppress religion can also exclude harm and, and oppress people and then i'll say one last thing that kind of stood out about vocational awe and itar's writing was looking at how the profession kind of went through this de or is going through like a deprofessionalization or a de-skilling and, and the tropes that people use to talk about de-skilling and deprofessionalization are the same tropes that we use in religious studies to talk about secularization theory. Um, so you have this fear of an automated system or a fear of new technology, a fear of the death of librarians, same thing with religion, the, the death of religion. So the death of a profession read similarly to me like the death of, of religion or what some would, would call the secularization theory. So, so this meant, means that I guess sociologists of religion incorrectly predicted that religion would lose social significance. They said there would be a less lessening of religious consciousness, lessening of religious activities and, and institutions. And instead what happened is religion did not lose significance, but these, these things like consciousness, behavior, activities, and institutions changed. They evolved and they adapted. So religion didn't die. Um, just like libraries, you know, we still have libraries. They've just changed. Um, the, our roles and relationships to these institutions have changed. Like the religious believer whose needs have changed, information seekers and library users have new needs that they are seeking help with, new answers that they're looking looking for. So just like in religion, you could say the priest becomes sometimes becomes a social worker or a psychologist. The librarian becomes a consultant or an advisor. I mean, I just saw overlap all all the time yeah. um, when I was reading these things. I think you've uh, you've hit on a very powerful analogy there. Um, that's really fascinating. I mean, one of the other things that uh, people tend to think of in when it comes to religion in an LIS context, of course, is in our um, our delightful classification schedules. So, uh, uh, if anyone's familiar with the Dewey Decimal System and how it divvies up the various religions of the world, we. Well, you'll, you'll know what's going on there. Needless to say, uh, as far as the top-level domains go, Christianity represents, what, 90% of, uh, of what's represented? I mean, it's all there. It's just some of it's a little bit more sequestered. Oh, do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, I have many thoughts. <laughs> uh, not just on Dewey, but I think because I'm more trained in Library of Congress classification just because of my work in, in an academic library. So I'm, I'm always thinking about that, that system. I mean, but both, both are fascinating, both are problematic, but both are perfect examples of North American attitudes to religion. I mean, what, what day of the week do we get off most, most often? Always Sunday. the Sundays. Yeah. Right? What holidays do we get off? 
Christian holidays. So, I mean, am I surprised when I look at these classification systems to see 90% of it is Christianity broken up into tiny, you know, specific chunks? I wasn't surprised, but I love it. Like, I think it's really interesting. I, I took LAS 9002 in the winter. That's so that's the classification. classification. Yeah. And one of our assignments, we got to pick a book and then really look at the classification closely and and critique and we were given a list of books and I was like "Mm, I want to do my own book (laughs) and my prof graciously was like yes you can do your own book so so I chose okay so I should say the part of LCC that really intrigues me is the occult section so the occult sciences because it has things like demonology satanism devil worship um, which I know as a religious studies scholar are are legitimate real things that people believe in but to someone else they kind of read they have like i see like scare tactics being used when i look at like demonology beside satanism i think like there's a real strategy to the choice of, of words that are being put together so so I picked uh, a book from my library, uh, The Devil's Party, Satanism in Modernity, which is an academic edited collection of, of essays by scholars um, in different fields. I think religious studies, history, sociology, literature. So they're talking about Satanism in modernity. And I use this book because, so the classification for this book is BF1548. So it's really within that in the heart of that occult sciences section. But it's interesting because I would classify it as a a book about a religious minority. And I guess then we would say, okay, but is the occult occult sciences a religious minority? Yes, but you can see all the other religions get their own kind of bracketing off, whereas things under this dangerous heading of occult sciences gets lumped, lumped together. So when I looked closer at this, the classification schedule, I had already thought it was pretty bad because of, you know, just the word demonology stood out to me. But you look at what else is beside it. Ghosts, apparitions, haunted places, elves, fairies, gnomes. So, I mean, the, my first concern was that we're putting yeah. a religion. Gnomes a very... definitely shouldn't be in there. Gnomes are completely gnomes. real. They're in South America. <laughs> Everyone sees them all the time. Well, fairies. I mean, people. So I, I, I was like, okay, maybe I'm being biased. So I actually did some research on fairies and elves because I was like, okay, if this is like a real, if there's like a still a group somewhere that really believes in. in the Icelandic, fairies. if I can recall correctly. Right. So, so yes, but, but most people wouldn't know that if they're just looking at this, they're like, oh, I think I even like cited like Lord of the Rings in this essay. Cause I was like, <laughs> it's like, they've, they've placed this. Yes. I don't know. I cited Middle Earth in my essay. That's fantastic. Uh, okay. So my first concern with this was that the proximity to supernatural beings like fa- fairies and elves, that contemporary popular opinion would deem as like fantasy, whereas the classification closer to the more commonly accepted religious supernatural beings like gods and goddesses would help legitimize Satanism as a religious belief system and not a fictional world like Middle Earth. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I was just looking at the terminology 
like that so occult that's okay i guess demons that's okay hauntings possessions so all of these things together kind of communicate fear apprehension does not communicate diversity pluralism or acceptance when in fact this book is really a, a very academic it's peer-reviewed i think it's oxford press if you were to go to your library so i looked up what other books it would be shelved beside it would be right beside a book called Michelle Remembers. And if you know anything about the satanic panic of the 80s and 90s, Michelle Remembers is this horrible book. It, it's not real. I think it was like, if they use like hypnosis to, uh, what's it called when you're like getting memories? Uh, false memory. Uh, yeah, false it was like false memories of like, I think satanic ritual abuse. So that's just one book it would be shelved beside. Another is called like <laughs> Painted Black, terrorizing our, oh no, Painted Black from drug killings to heavy metal, the alarming true story of how Satanism is terrorizing our communities. So that's just like a few titles that this book would be shelved by. I think there was a terrible Tom <laughs> Hanks movie too, or was that Dungeons There's so and many. Dragons? There's so many movies because the Satanic Panic was really, or the Satanic Ritual Abuse um era was really prominent in in our society so there's lots of books that are still from that era that are still on the shelves and if you put a book like the scholarly edited volume beside those it I sends mean, a signal it's a lot of problems it's yeah. a signal and it, it's you know like so now we have QAnon, right so you have like newer contemporary conspiracy theories that are kind of shifted us away from the satanic panic but it's still it's it's problematic to say the least so i've got a final and perhaps difficult and unfair question for you are there any lessons you think that lis as a field might be able to learn from uh religious studies uh, you have you're an expert in one you're getting increasing exposure in the other Maybe it's uh, it's a bridge too far, but I was hoping you could make it anyway. Or are we not at that stage yet? I think something that LIS could learn from religious studies that would be valuable would definitely be related to classification uh, systems and categorization. Just, you know, getting beyond the North American Christian focus I should say white Christian focus would be really beneficial. And, and for me coming from a program, the title of my program was religious diversity in North America. So being exposed to the diversity, multiculturalism, pluralism, I think that's important to recognize that we are living in a very diverse society that is founded on Christianity and Christianity still really does inform our worldview and the the way that society functions. But I just think it would be really valuable to start thinking beyond that. I mean, if we're talking about like even archival arrangement and classification using actual indigenous languages, uh, that would be something I think that would that is happening. But you know, just moving beyond. Christianity. That's one thing I would I would like LIS to do is move beyond whatever that is. That's you know the what, a limited a limited in. yeah a limited worldview. Um, yeah, like a broader worldview. And I'm sure like I don't know enough about LIS or LIS um, scholarship to even know what's out there. 
but from my readings in class, I mean, it does still seem very, very white and very, very Christian North American dominated. I will say there are a lot of voices out there calling for the exact sort of change that uh, that you're mentioning here. But I think having an entire another field struggle with us uh, to to achieve those changes, you know, it, it gives us hope, you know, have a little bit of solidarity. So that mm-hmm. sounds fantastic. Thank you very much for having this uh absolutely fascinating uh, conversation with me and i hope the book publishing goes well and you uh sell a million copies and become you know a captain of industry thank you thank you for having me it's been a pleasure this has been another episode of so what the podcast about library and information science research and why it matters so what is created and produced by students at the faculty of information and media studies at western university in london ontario find us online at so what.fims.uwo.ca 